Antic Heart, Chapter 8 the short distance to Judith Pettigrew's house, rehearsing what I will say when I arrive. It is cooler today and a fine mist hangs in the air. I draw up to the house, dismount and take Pim to the stable boy, who smiles when he sees me. Master Nash, what happened to you? We've had some excitement here two days back. Have you heard? We had the army coming to call. I nod and look annoyed. Yes, indeed I have heard. Some idiots were spreading false stories about me, but I was a wireless spy. Did you hear anything? I mean to take out the man who is responsible. I am a godly man, not one of that nest of vipers that spawns in France. I hope that sounds suitably irate. The stable boy looks worried and speaks up shrilly. It wasn't me, Master Nasser, I promise. Don't tell the mistress. But I was out drinking that night. I don't know what went on. But when I came home, there were soldiers swarming all over the place and you'd gone. You vanished. One moment you were in the house, the next you'd gone. That was strange, sir. You must admit it. My brother was ill, I say shortly. I had to visit him before he leaves this earth. Now, if you will, take Pim and give him some oats. He has missed some meals in the last day or two. The stable boy scurries into action, coaxing Pim into a stall, talking nonsense into his ear. Like many stable boys, he seems more at home with the horses than with his human connections. I walk briskly up to the house and knock loudly on the door. I can't help but grin as I hear Nellie's halting step approaching. It feels good to be returning to this house, even if it isn't going to be for that long. The door opens. You! Nellie stands there, surprised. What are you doing then? I thought we'd seen the last of you. You've not come to make more trouble, have you? That depends on you, Nellie, I answer boldly. I need to find out who has been spreading lies about me and deal with them. They will find themselves in a lot of trouble, I can tell you. Why, I sat next to Oliver Cromwell in church once. I am of his party and I need to find out who has been telling foul lies about me. Nellie looks sulky. I told no lies about you, Master Nash. I never said you were a spy. But you can't deny you were with Mistress Pettigrew in her chamber late into the night. She is confident that this is irrefutable. Mistress Pettigrew and I were reading the Bible, I say irritably, and we were praying for her son and her household. That is you, Nellie. I hope you are grateful. I look severely at her. Nellie sniffs. 
So I guess you'll want to be saying prayers with her now. She's in her chamber. She's not been out since the soldiers came. Needs the word of God, I reckon. She stands aside to let me go in. I run past her and up the stairs, closely followed by a girl, who looks a lot more cheerful than I feel. I knock at the door and hear a muffled voice telling me to enter. Girl is standing up with his paws on the door and he bursts in as soon as I push it open. Judith is lying in bed in her shift, her hair uncombed and her eyes red with crying. I feel sorry for her. The other night had obviously proved a strain. Judith, my darling, I breathe. Are you ill? Please, God, it is not serious. She raises herself from the pillows and smiles weakly at girl who is trying to jump into the bed. Dear little dog. She leans over, picks him up and holds him on her lap. I do find that animals are so much better than humans. Do you not, Henry? She says plaintively. No, I do not. You are a wonderful human being, whereas girl is just a selfish brat. I speak confidently. I do not want her to stray down the road of self-pity. Henry, I am quite prostrate with nerves after that night. I cannot move. For me to be raided by parliamentary troops, it is such a humiliation. And that was because of you, Henry. She sniffs and buries her face in girl's white woolly fur. No, it was not because of me, dear Judith. It was because of jealousy. John heard from Nellie how close we are and he wanted to teach me a lesson. So he got some of his friends to come round the house. It was nothing to do with me. Judith frowns and looks at me suspiciously. John would not do that. He would not put me through that. She is his mother. She will defend him. I do not blame him. He is protective of you. I can understand that. His fears ran away with him and he thought he was protecting you. I dislike John intensely, but I cannot show her that I am wise enough to know that in a contest for her allegiance between him and me, he would always win. She asks me about how I managed to get away that night. I tell her about my night in the sheep shelter before reaching Penshurst Place. I do not mention Lucy, and Judith thinks that the Earl of Leicester is my patron anyway. Was the Earl angry with you? she asks. No, not at all. He knows I am good at my job and believes in me. I wonder if the Earl actually even remembers me now. He must have laughed when he saw you dressed as a maid, she smiles. You make a good woman, Henry. It's hard to imagine it now, but you were very convincing. I don't know how you women manage with your skirts and the tight lacing. It was the greatest travail for me to wear those clothes. It is so much more comfortable with them off. Our eyes meet and she blushes. Hmm, she changes the subject. So what are you doing here now? I thought I would never see you again. Judith, I'm here to see you. I could not bear to leave you in the way I did. I can see that you think I was never sincere and I want to prove to you 
but I do have feelings for you. I want to finish my work for you. I am just a secretary. I support the king, but I am not a spy. And I do not run away from my obligations. I speak with some passion. I do not like people to think ill of me. Judith starts fumbling with her hair. Henry, I'm sorry I doubted you. I'm so glad you returned. But look at me. I'm such a mess. What must you think of me? Judith, you are always beautiful. I approach the bed, take her hand and kiss it. She leaves her hand in mine for a moment longer than is necessary. Now we must get back to work. She pushes girl off her lap. Henry, go to the study and find the papers I need to sign. I will dress and make myself respectable. I nod and make my way to the door. And Henry, she orders, get us some more of that Rhenish wine to drink. It makes the work so much more palatable. I bow and leave the room, closely followed by a girl. So, she has forgiven me for her distress. Her fondness for me is unabated. And I have assured myself that nobody really thinks that I am a spy. So, it is safe to stay a couple of days, finish my work and get a good reference from her. I settle back into the routine easily, working with Judith most, most days, sustained by wine and almond biscuits. I avoid talking about the king. I have learnt how the most private of conversations can be overheard. Judith and I flirt, but I do not want to take it any further now. Lucy fills my mind and my heart, and I cannot imagine anyone else in her place. And Judith, too, seems more conscious of her reputation and position. A few nights later, when the work is nearly finished, I drink the last of my goblet of wine, take it and join Judith in the parlour. She is reading and absently raises a hand to me as I enter. I pour myself some more wine and sit quietly, absorbing the peace of the room with its ticking clock and flickering candles. At last she looks up. So, you are at the end of your work, Henry. How much longer will you stay? Just another day, mistress. I will show you where all the paperwork is kept. You are up to date now. You will not need my services for another few months. And will I see you again, Henry? She looks questioning at me. She is not angry, but her adoration has gone. I give the honesty she requires. I do not know, mistress. I have other work to do. You know that. You say you're not a spy, but your work is for the king, she observes. But I did not spy on you, mistress, nor on your household. I would not do so. I like you, mistress Judith. I truly do. And I do not consider myself a spy. She smiles wryly at me. But I think that is where you are heading, Henry. You are in with a dangerous crowd. A crowd you have sympathy for, Judith. A crowd that you were nearly part of once. She looks sharply at me and then nods to acknowledge the truth of what I am saying. She followed the murdered King Charles 
And then there is her story of the mysterious gallant who gave her the ruby pendant. That luscious, fiery stone did not come from an ordinary man. Who was your gallant, Judith? Who was it that you were in love with? She looks down at her lap, twisting her plain wedding ring around her finger. He was the Duke of Albany. David was his name. He was Scottish, had come to England with James I. Do you know, he had a look of you, Henry. Maybe that's why I like you so much. She smiles at me. So how did you meet him? You, a merchant's daughter. You were well off, comfortable, certainly, but not in court circles. No, no, we did not mix socially. It was one afternoon. I had heard there were elephants in St James's Park. I wanted to see them, but my father disapproved of young ladies visiting a public park. So one day, when he was away on business, I slipped out by myself. It was a very foolish thing to do, I know, but I was young, Henry, and knew no better. I walked to the park and went to find the animal enclosures. There were crowds of people around them, mainly rough people, and peddlers crying out their wares. I was so excited. I pushed forward to the front of the crowd to see the elephants. Have you seen one, Henry? I shake my head. They are enormous creatures, larger than any horse, and they have noses that are as long as ropes. They even pick up food with their noses. I have never seen anything like those elephants. But then I turned to go home and moved away from the crowd. It was getting dark, and that part of the park was quite lonely. Suddenly, two men came upon me and tried to wrestle me to the ground. I was terrified and scared to call out in case I got into trouble. I thought then that I was about to breathe my last. But then I heard a man shouting at them. I looked up and saw him. He had a sword and he made at one of them with it. He cut him across the cheek and then went for the other man. They were terrified. They were just louts. They were not gentlemen. They had daggers, but not a sword, and he was able to chase them off. Then he came up to me to check I was all right. I was crying and scared that my father would find out. But he took out his handkerchief and gave it to me to wipe my eyes. Such a beautiful lace handkerchief, Henry. He offered me his arm and walked me back to my parents' house. It took about half an hour and we talked all that time. I told him about how dull my life was and how I wanted to have some fun and he laughed. He had a soft laugh and I found myself laughing too. Before he got back, he asked if he could meet me again. You didn't think I would do that, did you, Henry? But we did meet again many times. I had a maid servant then and I would go for a walk with her and then pay her to walk away ahead of us. David and me, we were very innocent. We walked and talked. We never even kissed. I knew he loved me. I knew he would marry me because he gave me that pendant. That showed he was serious. But then my father found out and that was the end of it. She sighs and her eyes are misty with memories. But then she stirs herself and speaks briskly. 
And it was a good thing in the end, Henry, because otherwise I would not have had my John, and he means the world to me. Yes, indeed, mistress, you must count the blessings that God has visited upon you. I do, I do, but just occasionally I wonder. Not for someone like me, though. That was why it was best I gave you the pendant. It's not for someone like me. I left the next day after a tearful farewell from Judith in the privacy of her parlour. Thank you so much for your help, Henry. It has meant so much. Now I am ready to take up control of the business again and it's all down to you. I have something for you. She turns to a table, picks up a letter and gives it to me. It is a reference addressed to whom it may concern. I read it out loud. I was recommended Henry Nash by the Earl of Leicester and as a result he was in my employ for six weeks as a secretary. I found him conscientious, hard-working and intelligent. He writes a good hand which is clear and elegant. I wholeheartedly recommend him. I am touched and thank her for her kindness. Then she dips into her pouch and pulls out some coins. Before I forget, Henry... Here is your pay. I have paid you for two months. She has been very generous and I bend to kiss her hand. She is a good woman and I like her. Then I pick up my hat, call girl and make my way down to the main door. Just as I am about to leave, she rushes after me. Here, I don't need these. Take them and with them my prayers. She stuffs a handful of large pearls into my hand. Judith, there is no need, I protest, handing them back. No, take them. What use do I have for them now? I am a widow. I live a simple life. Take them and use them well. I don't know much about you, Henry, but you make me feel hopeful. Take these for the future. I stuff them into my pouch, creamy white spheres that feel silky to the touch. I take her by the hand and pull her to me. Goodbye, Judith. May God bless you. I give her a brief hug and almost run out of the door, not wanting her to see the tears in my eyes. Girl follows me quickly. I perch him on the saddle and mount Pim. May God go with you, Henry, Judith calls as we trot down the drive. I turn and wave goodbye. The road out of London is busy with farmers making their way into the city. Wealthy burghers and their families riding towards the country, merchants on the road to Dover. I relax and enjoy the summer sun warm on my back. Pim trots happily, sniffing the fresh green air, and Girl thumps his tail against my chest. If I carry on at this pace, I will be at Penshurst by late afternoon. As the day wears on and we get further into the countryside, the road becomes quieter. I can hear the sound of Pim's hooves on the road and the wind in the trees. I am lulled into a pleasant state of mindlessness, just hearing the hooves and the wind and the occasional snuffle from girl. Occasionally I see a shepherd herding sheep or a labourer tilling the land, but mainly it is quiet. I fall to wondering about Lucy. Does she love me? 
She has loved many times, I know. What makes me different? She would say it is possible to love more than one person at once. Is it? I know, but if I love her, I must love her as she is. I cannot expect her to be different. She will always flirt, always find men and women attractive. Can I accept this? Yes, I have flirted and played with many women and liked them, but I have never loved them. Can love coexist with my way of life where sex is a currency and attraction is influence? My mind is in a ferment. The one thing I know is that I cannot make any decision. I will have to follow Lucy, for I cannot do without her. I meet her in her chamber just before dinner. We fall into each other's arms, me smothering her face with kisses. She smells of roses and musk. Girl, jealous, jumps up at both of us and is pushed away. Before I forget, I pull the pearls out of my pouch. Here, Judith Pettigrew gave me these as I left. She takes them in her hands and gasps at their smooth beauty. Then she puts them carefully in her jewellery box. You are a master, young Henry. How you persuaded her to give you these as well as that pendant, I will never know. She had sympathy for our cause, Lucy, and she had sympathy for me. I smile, but then I turn back to my love. Oh, my darling, I've missed you so much. I speak and then kiss, speak and then kiss again. Come, come, pulling her towards the bed. She resists. No, I must appear at dinner, and so must you. Why? You would much rather be in bed with me, my darling. She laughs and detaches herself from my arms. Yes, indeed I would, but we have to maintain your identity. The Earl of Leicester will want to see you and to hear about how well you did the work he recommended you for. My sister, Dorothy, will want to see that I am your patron and not your lover. Is there a difference? I asked provocatively. Yes, my dear Henriette, I am your lover, my darling. But as Henry, I am your patron and that? We must maintain. She bends down and pets Girl. We will take Girl with us and hide him under the table. There are sure to be some scraps for him. It is mutton tonight and I abhor mutton. I much prefer fish or chicken with a light salad. But the meals are prepared for the Earl and that is his taste. She puts on her mask, takes my arm and we process in an entirely decorous manner downstairs. We sit in the great hall at a long table on a slightly raised dais. The Earl of Leicester, Robert Sidney, and the Countess, Dorothy, sit in the centre on low, large oak chairs. Lucy sits beside the Earl, and I am placed a few spaces down from Dorothy, together with the educated servants, the steward, the governess, the librarian. The lesser servants eat in the hall below. Girl lurks beneath my chair, occasionally moving along to find any morsels that have been dropped.
Lucy is right. The mutton is tough and unpleasant. Girl eats most of mine and I cover the rest with salad leaves. As we finish eating, the Earl turns in his seat and calls down the table to me. Is that Master Nash down there? Welcome to my house. I hear you have had some adventures in London. I blush and wonder how to respond. What does he know about me working for Judith Pettigrew? Lucy came to my rescue. Henry has been in London before, Robert. It isn't so much of an adventure for him now, you know. The Earl persists. But I hear that you were a little too friendly with Mistress Pettigrew. Her son got so jealous, he got his friends to raid the house. He laughs loudly, his face red and sweaty, after drinking large amounts of the excellent wine that is always provided here. That was a mistake, Your Grace. It was soon remedied, I reply, trying to sound calm. Yes, indeed it was, chuckles the Earl. That young man got into trouble with his commanding officer for that. Confined to camp, or so I hear. Serve him right, young troublemaker. Dorothy and Lucy join in the laughter. Lucy with a look of relief on her face. That was just a temporary problem, I say. I was able to complete the work that I was asked to do, and Mistress Pettigrew has given me an excellent reference. Good work, Henry Nash, the Earl says. Lucy persuaded me to recommend you, and I am glad that you did not let me down. Indeed, he did not, says Lucy. He will be doing some more work with me now over the next few weeks, and I am sure he would be willing to help if you need any scribing done. Very well, very well. Good to hear. Now, have we some sweetmeats to finish our meal with? Later that night, I creep into Lucy's chamber. She welcomes me with kisses and wine, telling me, I just want to sit with you for a while, Henry, and know that tonight is ahead of me. I want to savour the fact that I will be holding you all night, loving you all night. I gulp at my wine. I want to get in bed with her, but I cannot begrudge her this need to pause for a moment to celebrate our time together. I look at her, sitting in her shift, her white hand clasping a silver goblet of wine. Her hair hangs loosely over her shoulders and its vibrant red shines against the snowy linen of her shift. Under the shift, her breasts are rounded and plump. I want to push her onto the bed, but at the same time, I want, like her, to keep this magic of it all being ahead of us. We drink our wine in silence, both devouring each other with our eyes. At last she looks up and tells me, Time to become Henriette, my love. Let me make that transformation. She comes to me and starts unbuttoning my breeches, making me stand up so that she can pull them down by my ankles. I step out of them and kick my shoes off. Now she undoes my doublet and fiercely pulls it from my shoulders. And so we stand, both in our shifts, facing each other, with time almost seeming to stand still. 
I reach forward to trust, touch her breasts so gently, so slowly. But now she is tired of waiting. She pulls me to her and we kiss each other ferociously. I push my tongue into her mouth, then allow her to do the same to me. We move sightlessly towards the bed, falling on top of each other, never wanting to let go. I pull up her shift and she does mine. We both laugh as the material bunches under our chins. We sit up and pull the shifts over our heads. Now we are naked and able to enjoy each other fully. This night I learn about the pleasure that can come from touch of the feet, kisses at the nape of the neck and fingertips circling over the belly. We spend a long time touching, stroking and kissing, murmuring endearments to each other, making promises that we don't know if we will keep. And so we progress until she is exploring my deepest secret, the ecstasy of being my true self. I am humming with delight and exhausted, but I want to give her the same pleasure. So I move my head down between her legs and start gently, intensely, moving my tongue over the most private part of her body. She moans and arches her back, but I will not let her go until she finally finds relief. Then she cries out and weeps in my arms. We lie entwined together, her hair against my cheek, my hand on her waist. We sleep until the morning light starts to come through the curtains into the chamber. I get up and dress hurriedly. I must not be in Lucy's chamber when her maid comes to wake her. She looks at me sleepily and blows me a kiss. See you later, my darling, I say. She mumbles a reply. We must work today, she says, without much conviction. Yes, Lucy, we will work, I agree, although work with you is always pleasure. I sit down, put my shoes on and creep to the door. Try to sleep another hour, I tell her. She smiles lazily. I will. I am tired. You have exhausted me, she says. I creep back to my chamber, where Girl is curled up on the bed, fast asleep. When he hears me come in, he raises his head and wags his tail. I lie down beside him and sleep.